0: Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhart. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by the Photographer's Ephemeris, the app that lets you plan your photography according to the sun and moon. We'll tell you more about the Photographer's Ephemeris later in the show. This week, we're happy to welcome Katrine Eisman, photographer, author, and much more. Katrine, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, Katrine... I've known you for years. I think we've only
2: met in person once or twice, such as the way on the internet. And what's great is we've been able to to follow you, your books, your photography, Instagram especially. There was some some things that caught our eye that, that said, oh, we should have Katrine on. So how did you get into photography? We don't have to go too deep into this, but I'm always curious, like like, what caught people on this path?
1: Right. Well, I was lucky. My uh, parents uh, really loved art and When I was young, every other weekend, we either go to a museum or out to nature. And so I just, we were surrounded with art books, art, museums. And so when I was like five, I I took the crystal stopper off their cognac bottle and I ran Mm -hmm. around the house photographing through the Photoshop facet filter, which of course had never been invented yet. Then when I went to college for the first time, I studied philosophy and politics and uh, realized that I don't like sitting, reading, and writing, that I want to do something. <laughs> I want to, you know, be outside, be active. And someone lent me their camera, and I didn't know how to turn it on. I had no idea what I was doing. But I followed this bunny rabbit around a field. And in my mind, it was like a National Geographic cover. But I loved it. I loved being out in the world, interacting, walking, looking. You know, I thought I can change the world with my photographs. I've... Uh, sobered up from that realization. And um, it just really lets me explore the world and see the world more clearly.
0: Do you live in New York? A lot of your photographs seem to be taken in Manhattan or around Manhattan.
1: Right. I live on the Hudson River, right across from Manhattan. And uh, we're lucky enough also to have a home up in Michigan on Lake Huron. So that's when you you see a lot of water. It's either Hudson River or Lake Huron. That's two
0: real opposites.
1: Yes, I don't want to go swimming in the (laughs) Hudson River. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking more of the landscapes in New York and, and Wisconsin by a river extremely different. Sort of yin-yang settings to take photographs.
1: Well, and what's beautiful about it is, you know, in up in Michigan, you have that endless horizon, which really lets your mind sort of go and be free. You know, New York City, there's the urban horizon which with the light and the weather, the clouds is also constantly changing.
2: And did you grow up in New York? Is that where you were going to visit museums and, and, and getting out? And
1: I grew up as a um, in a very good suburb about 20 miles from New York. And we could do whatever we wanted as long as we were home in time for dinner.
0: I remember those days. And when I had a child, everything was different. People started worrying. And now parents have to make play dates for their kids. It's like We would just go out and we'd play. And as you say, as long as you're home for dinner. I know, it's amazing that we survived. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't even have a helmet when I rode my bicycle. Or when I went down that steep hill on a skateboard, didn't have knee pads and elbow pads. So, Katrine, you started shooting film, obviously, like anyone who shot film back in the day. When did you make the switch to digital?
1: Well, as I mentioned, I went to college once and I was asked to leave Oh. Um, meaning like you're not being college. So, I went back to college when I was thirty. And became I was a thirty year old freshman, and I went to Rochester Institute of Technology, and in my second year there, very early nineteen eighty nine, one professor understood digital and electronic. They called it electronic still imaging back then, and I mm-hmm. literally followed Professor Douglas Ford Ray down the hall, because what what I had been doing in the dark room you know, compositing, creating effects. His students were doing in the comfort of a chair on a beta version of Photoshop. So we started with a version like point eight nine. you know, no manuals, no user groups, nothing. I mean, I think it had levels and brightness contrast. I mean, and so that was fortuitous that he was forward thinking and that I picked up on it that, I'm at college, I wasn't going to get a third chance, so I better look into the future. So yes, I started with film, and I obviously don't shoot film anymore, I respect it, but for me, the advantages of digital as a photographer and artist and as a teacher, you know, make complete sense. So I started in 89, you know, with cameras that were stupidly expensive and terribly
0: bad. And very low resolution, they were like, it would be the size of a postage stamp today if you look at the resolution. Oh, yeah,
1: 640 by 480 was like we were winning. The, yeah, the Sony <laughs> Mavica was $10,000 and recorded on two and a quarter floppy disks. You could kill a cow with it. But, you know, you had to be open. And back then, people that were sort of doing the poo poo, la la la, you know, weren't really getting it because photography is based on technology. And the changes in technology influence the aesthetic and the practice of photography. And so, I spent a lot of years sort of making excuses, going, this is going to get better. And, you know, I was right. So, you know, it's been very exciting. I'm glad I started back then when it was literally just levels and brightness contrast, because right now Photoshop is, you know, it's a, it's a 10-ton gorilla. I'm glad I don't have to start with it now.
0: But it's interesting that you got into digital photography in Rochester, of all places, the home of Kodak.
1: Well, I also worked with Kodak. I helped them roll out their first full-frame 35-millimeter camera. That wasn't tethered, that was portable. And I actually went to meetings at Kodak and State Street. You imagine a big boardroom table, and one side were the film people, and the other side were the digital people. Oh, boy. They would, (laughs) yo, yeah, they would fight. The film people, we're paying for you. The digital people, we're the future. And they'd go back and forth, and then they'd look at me, what do you think? So I was like, well, it's great. You offer both.
0: Yeah. It must have been fascinating, though, to be involved in that period where, you know, there is such a shift in the technology. And, and arguably, Kodak tried to sort of pretend it wasn't happening for a long time, hoping that it would just be a passing fancy. But now we see that, you know, poor old Kodak.
1: Well, I mean, the Kodak engineers back then and the patents they have and they created the first digital camera in 1976. You know, I mean, that's what I loved about working with these people. They were, they were incredibly smart and dedicated. I mean they they really cared about what they were doing. I mean, okay, you take a company like that, it's the you know this huge freighter it's not gonna turn on a dime, and so you see that you know in digital how the smaller companies came up um, I mean they still have so many patents and all this technology and color that it's pretty amazing. I think a lot of people learned by watching Kodak because no company wants to be kodak I mean you know have that experience
2: yeah was this something that at the time you had like a lightning bolt moment that said wow this is definitely the future or was it a this is a very interesting thing that they're dabbling with i mean because early digital like everything was really against it it was you know it's it's this little side project
1: i think that the well when i first started i mean you know an apple fx2 was a great machine there's twelve thousand dollars Oh, yeah. you know up upgrade with eight mega ram the Kodak printer was twenty five thousand dollars. The camera was twenty five thousand dollars, so you know that lightning bolt hit my bank account <laughs> um,
0: no, but I was lucky then those are prices you're quoting twenty years ago, thirty years ago when that was real money
1: exactly so the light, the kodak four sixty was really a lightning bolt because it was it was good quality. And it was transportable and interchangeable lenses because it was based on, like, I think a Nikon F3. And so, you know, being able to actually walk around, get the quality, 18 megapixels, six megapixels, excuse me, you know, that was pretty interesting. But I have to admit, I made mistakes too. You know, I worked at the Kodak Center for Creative Imaging in Camden, Maine, mm-hmm. and the Kodak's first camera was uh, made for uh, the military and the press. So it was a, a Nikon that was tethered to a 12 pound hard drive. How's that for portable? And it could hold 156 images. You know, I'd be walking, shooting with it, and people would go always, is that your heart monitor? (laughs) I'd be like, I always have my heart monitor attached to my Nikon. But Apple came up, and they brought one of their first Apple Quick Takes 100s. Oh, yeah. It looked like a plastic
0: hamburger. Mm -hmm. Yep.
1: And in in... In It could hold eight images, and I was like, oh, poo-poo, I can hold 156, (laughs) man, man, I was wrong. And in a way, me making that mistake has taught me not to poo-poo things like that, because obviously we know where Apple is and who sold more cameras.
0: And we know where digital photography is. Yeah. You probably saw that Vim Vendors made some comments recently about how there's too many photographs and... And photography's dead and all that. But when you think about this, you know, back in the film days, most families had some sort of a camera to take snapshots. Obviously, people take more now. But there are so many more possibilities for photography. You know, you just look at the people on Instagram. And I'm not talking about the people taking selfies. I'm talking about the actual photographers. You know, there's millions of them. And it really has taken what was a confidential art form. When I started, I did a Photoshop in the 70s in high school, and, you know, back then photography was, well, it's an arty thing other than your vacation snapshots. But now photography is is a whole world. It's expanded so greatly since then.
1: Well, it's, well, people are understanding, you know, we as like intellectuals say people are visually literate. And it's like, what are you talking about? No, what mm-hmm. I'm talking about is people are communicating with images. I work with young people. I mean, you know, you look at Snapchat, you look at WeChat, you look at Instagram, it's all about images and how quickly we can read them. I mean, I can't remember the last time I went to a web page and there was no picture. And if I did find one, I would be like, "I'm out of here," because <laughs> <laughs> it, it was probably an insurance company. Um, but right. the, the the we use pictures much more, and we see more, and we understand them very, very well. Our brains are very good at that. So I think it's great when I people see people taking pictures. You know, I'm like, "More power to you." What I am concerned about is that people are, like, taking the picture to prove that they've experienced something. And you see that in museums. You see it at, like, tourist sites. You see that at shows. That it's like, you know, they're leading their life for Instagram. And that's mm. sort of like, you know, sometimes it's just good to, like, you know, put down the camera for, come on, 15 seconds. And uh, look at look at what's happening around you. and And I have been known to make that mistake, too. You know, I want to look at my phone. I want to check Instagram. I'm walking down the street. A, I know I'm going to bump into something. and That's really stupid. Um, But (laughs) I'm probably missing a shot because I'm not looking around. So you've got to find a balance.
0: I have actually never taken a selfie, ever. A friend of mine once took a selfie of him and me, but I have never taken a selfie. And and I walk around, I live just outside of Stratford-upon-Avon, which is a very touristy town, and I see the people who are constantly taking selfies, who are constantly trying to photograph all the old buildings. And as you say, they go there to get the photographs, to put them in their Instagram feed or on Facebook or whatever, but they don't experience where they are. I remember a group of, I was at Stonehenge last year, and a group of tourists were all walking around, and they were just, you know, jabbering and taking pictures. And they weren't Looking at this edifice, which is, you know, prehistoric and which is a rarity, but is it that much different than back in the film days when people had their Instamatic or their SX-70? And I guess it is a little bit because it cost money to take pictures back then.
1: It's very different because back when you photograph film, how we share the images has changed completely.
0: Mm -hmm. And you
1: see it when someone takes a picture of like a young child, the child immediately runs up and wants to look at it or you're sure to show the phone. Because back then, in like twenty years ago, you'd have your point and shoot, your instamatic, and then you'd drop the film off, and you'd go pick it up a week later, and then you'd get together, and like pass around the prints. So that was a more it was it was communal. There was some time in between. So it's sort of like become the reality. You're at Stonehenge, but look at my picture. That's like it's 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 actually fascinating.
0: I remember that I took a bunch of pictures of people taking selfies in front of Stonehenge, and it was really interesting to see their faces and their reactions. And if it hadn't been so windy, which it always is at Stonehenge, I would have stood around and taken more pictures like that, because the way people, the way people interact in front of a monument is really fascinating. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. When you're shooting landscape photography, it's all about the light. You want to be in the right place when the sun is in the right position. The Photographer's Ephemeris is an app that helps you plan outdoor photography in natural light. You can see how the light will fall on the land, day or night, at your current location, or at any location on the planet. The Photographer's Ephemeris 3D gives you a 3D model of the terrain. It shows you exactly how the sun, moon, stars, and Milky Way are positioned relative to mountaintops and valley floors where you're shooting. You can interact with a rich simulation of sunlight, moonlight, and starlight, set against the actual topography of your shooting location. Plan your photoshots in advance and save up to 33% when you buy the Photo Planning Tools bundle on the App Store. This contains the Photographer's Ephemeris, the Photographer's Ephemeris 3D, and the Photographer's Transit, a map-based field of view planning app. The Photographer's Ephemeris and its related apps help you take the best photos at the right times. It is also available for Android, and there's even a web version visit photoephemeris.com, that's photoephemeris in one word, .com, or use the link in the show notes. So, you were saying something that was interesting, that you take a picture of a kid and they want to see the picture. When I take pictures, when I go around with my camera, I very rarely look at my pictures when I take them. And I guess this is because I did start back in the days of film. The only time I'll check is if I'm really trying to get something in focus just right, or I really need to check the exposure, but more often I'll bracket exposure. I'll do three shots with different exposure compensation. But I have no desire to look at the pictures right away. I like that kind of surprise when I download the photos to my computer and I get to discover if they're successful.
1: Well, I understand that there's a variety of ways. It depends, I think, how you're working and what you're doing. Um, what I prefer my students not do is that adage of chimping. You're know, you looking at the mm-hmm. camera going, oh, 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 oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, because once again, you're missing the moment around you. And so I think that, you know, when you're when you're out working and you're trying things, you're learning while you're shooting. And by looking at the photo, you could see this is working, this isn't, I need to push this further. I should use a different lens. Those are different approaches. Personally, I mean, I shoot mirrorless. Well, yeah, I'm a Sony artisan. Mm-hmm. So because the, the quality of that electronic viewfinder, my eye is on that viewfinder so much more. So I can see the photo instantly. I know what I'm getting. And it's, it's helping me get to the better picture faster. So you're looking at the LCD screen, which is just irritating. Also, for us more mature types that need glasses, I cannot oh, yeah. <laughs> see the LCD screen without my glasses yes. on. Yes. But I can't photograph with my glasses on.
0: Ah. Exactly. And that little diopter correction on the viewfinder is the best thing on a camera. And there's another thing for me with the LCD. I have a bit of a tremor. So if I'm holding a camera out and looking at the LCD, it's not as stable as when the camera is leaning against my face.
1: Mm-hmm. And so um, where is I going with that? So that constant on, off, and then putting your glasses in your mouth and it's New York City, that's just disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what's what's also interesting now is how people are instantly sharing. I mean, not just even shoot an Instagram because that could take up to 10 seconds but the Instagram stories and the Facebook stories so you're like you could you know you're right you could be right there and people love that too
0: Is that how that works See I'd never use those and whenever I see them on Instagram or Facebook I just ignore them I don't look at them
1: Oh no they're just there to make you more jealous
0: <laughs> I know but is is the idea that your camera is actually tethered to Instagram so you shoot and it immediately goes there No
1: you can hit your profile button and you can choose to do a live video Oh okay and so it's sort of what's going on at that moment right. or a photo and then type on it and things like that.
0: So you can show people
2: your dessert as you're eating it. Yeah. So you can share in three seconds instead of 10 seconds. But
0: then I could do live cat videos. That would be cool, actually.
2: You absolutely could. And that's actually probably like, like your path to success right there.
0: <laughs> <You didn't laughs> we, we were commenting that there are no cats in your photos on your Instagram pictures. And then Jeff said that they're probably all in the shadows.
1: <laughs> anyway, I love cats. I love dogs. Um... But the the no cats in Michigan, because I'm scared they're just going to decimate the, the wildlife that I encourage to be in my garden. Ah, you know, ah, and I'm yeah, not going to have enough. just a house cat and yeah. I decline fair this enough. animal cruelty. So <laughs> and and a dog, in all honesty, you can edit this out. I don't want to follow something around for 15 years cleaning up its poop. Yes, <laughs> I totally agree. And I love them all. But
2: yeah, I. I love dogs and cats. Unfortunately, I realized when I went to college that I could breathe when I'm away from dogs and cats. And that's when I discovered that I was allergic. I want to bring up something that you had mentioned visual literacy. And when we were talking about people taking shots, one thing that I think that is interesting is when I had a little point-and-shoot camera when I was young and we would go someplace, I would take pictures. But it would totally be with the idea of look where I am. But now I think... You know, people go and they do that to say, "Look, I'm here." But because they've seen examples on Instagram, or they've gone to a place because they've seen it on Instagram or elsewhere, there's more of a a visual literacy of well, what makes a better shot here? Even if they're just, you know, saying, "Here I am," there seems to be just just by I don't know osmosis or or just in the preponderance of millions of images, people are taking better photos.
1: In that sense. But are they? So, people are looking, are seeing a lot more photos. And if you look at a lot of photos, that's like a great step of getting better. Okay? But, has to be a but, you photograph the things that you recognize. That's why every blank picture of the slot canyon and that horseshoe can Uh look the same. Has has anyone ever seen a bad picture of the slot canyons?
2: I have a couple, but... Not that I've shared.
1: <laughs> people that you're recording where you are, you recognize, oh, this is Slot Canyon, or this is that Horseshoe Bend. You know, mm. this is uh, the Yosemite landmarks. You photograph it because you recognize it. And that's how it function. What people, what photographers are going to do is, of course, you're going to record I was here. But then they're going to interpret. Why am I here? Why am I taking the picture? How do I see it? And it's that next step of interpretation you know, get away from the checklist because there is a checklist now in Instagram world of about 400 locations
0: that okay. you should go to. And they're being overrun by tourists who want to take pictures. And uh, I hate to say it, a number of them are falling off or cliffs. Or fall off cliffs. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And it's a real shame because, um, you know, there's areas they are going to have to actually control how many people go in because it is getting ruined. So yeah. I always push my students, you know, of course, you establish the scene. But then how do you interpret it? And that's point of view, framing, depth of field, etc. What time of day are you shooting? Mm-hmm. So, things like that. And that's what takes work. We don't need you know, another picture of like, I don't know, name it.
0: I've, I've been in the UK for about five years and I went to Stonehenge twice and I've taken pictures. And both times I was there, I was like, okay, this is a fascinating place. But what can I do to take a picture of this that will be any different from what someone else has done? So what I tried to do was get close ups. I mean, I took some shots of the whole, the whole hinge, the circle of stones. I tried to get close ups of different things, but nevertheless, it, it's like you can't take pictures of that unless you are in a privileged situation that there's no one there. Or I don't know if you know Michael Kenna's photo that he took of Stonehenge, you know, long exposure at night, that sort of thing. That you have to be alone to be able to do that. But otherwise, it's almost pointless to take pictures of monuments like that. Well,
1: mm-hmm. I have to admit, lots of times when I go to beautiful places or museums, I look at the postcards first. I'm like, there, it's great. They did a great job.
0: <laughs> and then they're They'll do it better than you and more quickly. And, and it totally frees me up. You don't need to up. lug all your gear. Yeah, yeah. You know, it frees freeze yeah. me up
1: now while I can, you know, concentrate on my pictures.
0: Sometimes we also recommend,
2: like, go and get that shot out of the way. Get the shot that everybody does so you have it and it's not occupying your brain. And then you can start looking for different angles and different approaches and, and all of that.
1: And photography uh, needs you to, I'm sorry, they need you to warm up. You, I, you always You always start shooting where you left off, which is why I photograph every single day. And those first couple shots, you could sort of go, ah, you know, these aren't any good. But it's sort of like stretching before a run. You know, just get back into it. Get familiar with the camera again. Make Mm -hmm. sure you don't have your nighttime setting when it's daytime. (laughs)
2: hi iso i've done that so many times it's 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 sad earlier you mentioned that you'd been doing compositing uh before you even got got to digital and into photoshop and so this brings us into the the photoshop work and post processing that you do and that you teach did you start compositing because you just didn't want to take a picture of whatever was right there? Or what what drew you to that? And how did that lead into Photoshop and, and, and the, that whole post-processing realm?
1: Well, the beauty of compositing, of course, and if you look at the history of photography, it's, it's, it can be done in camera, in the darkroom, mm-hmm. et cetera. I always had a problem trying to say something in like 1 one twenty fifth of a second. Mm. You know, I'm not a photojournalist, and it just felt like, really short period of time and so the things that I was exploring and wanted to express the idea of being multi-layered multi-dimensional appealed to me and also when you're doing it in the dark room or with film the the concept of serendipity came in a lot which I Mm -hmm. loved with those surprises of oh I hadn't thought of that and what you know what you think is a mistake but back in film you know there was no undo so you're like Okay, <laughs> where am I going to go with this? And so I just like that, that depth. I also like the um, how it slowed me down. In, instead of being an image hunter, I was an image creator. And so that, that just always appealed to me.
2: So as you're shooting now, are you thinking of, of what is in front of you primarily? Or do you have the idea of, okay, I know how this is going to look after I do work with it some more in Photoshop.
1: I literally see Lightroom in my viewfinder. I mean, I can look outside and go, man, gradient with clarity and dehaze is going to make those clouds pop. (laughs) Uh And because that's sort of, that's my, my metier, that's my world. And so I completely think about processing uh, when I'm, when I'm shooting. And when I used to do a lot of compositing, you know, people could get very uneasy because I'd be like, you know, I'm going to take <laughs> your head and I'm going to put it on this building, and you could see people like, ah. But you know, it's just that the imagination and anybody that uses the software a lot, that's what you shoot for. It's part of your. It's part of your language.
0: It's interesting because I'm very uninterested in post processing. I use Apple Photos. I'll adjust exposure, contrast, brightness. I'll do a little bit of this and that. I'll make black and white conversions. But I don't even want to learn about all these advanced things because in some ways I feel that, and I totally respect people who do what you do, but in some ways for me, photography is not that. It's more taking a picture of what's there and and tweaking it a little bit to get what you want. I'm more like the William Eggleston who takes pictures of things and, and doesn't plan necessarily what's going to happen than, you know, someone who's going to be spending, I want to spend more time taking pictures and not in front of the computer, basically.
1: Well, I understand that. That's why I I don't do compositing anymore. Okay. <laughs> because I want to be out in the real world, and so um, I mean, I well, I shoot in the studio also. So the advantages is I've become a better photographer. So there's a lot less time in Photoshop. Right. You, you know, we don't want to mm-hmm. fix fix things, and so um, it's a balance. And now with Lightroom, it's you know so much easier and faster that i can I can really balance both
0: and and plus today's cameras are so much better that you're saving time on the back end because of what you can do on the front end
1: absolutely. No arguments from, from
2: me on that. <laughs> this also points to having different visions. I mean, you know, Kirk is not interested in in, in doing post processing because he sees more of the 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 moment and capturing that moment. Whereas somebody who does a lot of post processing or knows Photoshop or Lightroom really well, their image of what the photo is extends all the way through that. And so I can totally see someone like, like, like their vision is I want a dark moody, you know, dark roiling clouds. And maybe you get some of that on the day, but definitely knowing where to push that brings, brings that vision forth, which I think is what you're really trying to focus on is, you know, like, like what do you have to say versus, uh, you know, what, this scene is that everybody else has seen.
1: Right, which I this summer I completed a fairly large body of work called uh the futility of memory. Oh yeah. And that was that was made up in uh along Lake Huron and they all the pictures started with the camera on a tripod with a neutral density filter because I needed the long exposure. Mm-hmm. And people asked me, Oh do you do that in Photoshop? And I'm thinking, Oh Lord <laughs> 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 and, and what those long exposures did is they put the serendipity back in, you know, the way the light came off the lake, the way the, the waves, the movement was rendered, the way I was rendered in the water. I mean, that was really beautiful. But on that note, I could look at the screen while I was shooting, and then I knew already what I was going to be doing in Lightroom, you know, to, to increase the contrast, the, the vibrancy, the clarity, et cetera, because we all... No, the raw file is a relatively flat object. Mm-hmm. So that's not how our eyes see. But if I can capture it, I know where I can take it. And so the post processing is very important for me. But you know, camera, tripod, long exposure, I am not doing that in Photoshop.
2: We will put a link to some of these images in the show notes. They're they're splendid because they do look processed, but they don't look processed. They don't look like you started with something basic and then just went crazy with it. It does seem like like this is an optical result that has, you know, some boosted saturation or, you know, some some vignetting or something. Um and
0: that's what really draws. And they don't look like typical long exposures where the water looks like whipped cream. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. My favorite exposure was one point six seconds. Oh, that's interesting. After a whole whole summer, I'm like, gotta get to 1.6 seconds.
0: That's interesting. And you can see in the photos where you, you have people who are moving and there's just enough movement to show the movement, but the water still has the character of water and it doesn't look like marble or something strange. That That is an interesting length of time to do an exposure. Because most people do think of long exposures for, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Got to make that waterfall look like it's not water. <laughs>
2: Got to make sure it's, it's gone. You can't even see it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I only, I mean, what on that project, I only had about 15 minutes a day that I could shoot. Because everything's shot at sunrise.
0: Ah, okay. Um,
1: so I'm on the lake. I'm out before sunrise. You know, all, I'm like, I set up, I mean, in the house. And then the morning, walk out. And then that sun, even on a cloudy day, would always usually break through on the horizon. And I had about 15 minutes where the light was gold. And as soon as it went to silver, I'm like, back to bed.
0: So that's interesting because the lighting does give all of these photos a certain character. And knowing that they were all shot about the same time of day or at least the same sun time of day explains how you get that character and that color and that tone and, and those shadows that are very particular to that time of day as well.
1: And that was part of the palette. So, uh, well, so I have maybe 45 total images. I don't want to know how many outtakes I have. Because when you shoot like that, it's like you have no, you know, I mean, it's just bad. My camera, it got wet, it got glitter, it got sand, it's fine.
0: But you had to get up early for a long time. Maybe your next project should be done at noon. That way you don't have to get up early.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I'm trying to figure my next project out on the lake in the time Because the light is uh. blue. Now little... I've announced it. Now I'm going to have to do it.
0: But twilight in the clouds is nice in winter. Um, I lived in the French Alps for a dozen years, and it's true that at that time of year, you get some wonderful light.
1: Yeah, but I will. Uh, it will not be wet or naked.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so a quick
2: question with this project. Did you have these results in mind when you started, or did the start of the project be, I'm going to do some long exposures in the morning and just see what happens, and then it turned into a project, or did you have, like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have this batch of photos at this time with this look.
1: Well, I took a long exposure workshop with a fellow Sony artisan, Theobald. I don't know his name. Mm -hmm. And um, what he really did was sort of bring down the intimidation factor of long exposure photography. So, of course, I went and I got the filter. And now I'm on the lake and I'm like, okay, I'm going to shoot, you know, the water. And it was glistening and beautiful. I'm like, well, that's great. Can't do that 40 times, right? <laughs> but the, the technical and the results inspired me. So I'm like, well, what, can, what else can I do? Because it's like, you know, you see people like photographing the actual sunset. I'm like, no, turn around. Mm-hmm. And so that yeah. sort of triggered what could I do? And, you know, I had some of those objects in the house, the vases and things. I'm like, well, let's sort of see. So I started doing the still lives in the lake. And after a couple shots, I was like, this is it. I got it. And so I would spend the morning, you know, the, the 15, 20 minutes shooting. I'd go in, do the editing, and then in the afternoon drive around to all the thrift stores, all the Salvation armies, and buy props. Because after a while, I knew it was going to look good with the water. You know, I have got a good yeah. collection of, you know, old crystal vases and bowls and things of different colors. Um, you know like who and then i always
0: wanted to work with that idea of things that
1: are completely ridiculous like there's a picture of me
0: ironing the lake i i'm actually just looking at that one thinking i hope it's not plugged in <laughs> you
1: know, i'm not getting and i'm not getting back the salvation army because i don't want to kill anybody
0: um, <laughs> and there's also one where there's a saw and you're sawing the light that's reflecting off the lake and and that's particularly nice because y- you have the long exposure of the drops of water that are coming off the teeth of the of the saw that create these really nice striations in the image.
1: Because well, I learned that if I put the object in the water and pull up, I'll get that. And so that's the thing. With digital photography, it's so great. You know, you take the picture, you look at it, hopefully you get better, right? Because it's teaching you what's working. And that's what, that's what I was doing. I mean, I dragged a lot of stuff in that lake. The neighbors were very nice. They would close their curtains because I was always out there in like some <laughs> negligee. But it was, uh, and I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm done with it. I mean, I've got 45 images. I've got to move on to the next thing because it's like, how much more can I drag down into the lake? But <laughs> so it was a good summer.
2: Let me also say, I'm. I'm glad that this wasn't the Hudson, because at first I thought maybe that's that's where yes. you were shooting. I was like, oh, no, now I'm concerned about her health.
1: Yeah, the Hudson's gotten a lot better in the last 30 years, you know, <laughs> with Riverkeeper and, there's you know, a lot of uh, water sports, kayaking, waterboarding. You know, it's gotten a lot better. But when you have those warning signs, like if you're young or pregnant, don't eat the fish. I'm like, I'm neither, and I'm not eating it. <laughs> so. The Hudson's got a lot better because like 30 years ago, it was, it was literally just a sewer.
0: So thank you very much for this, Katrine. This is wonderful work that you have here. And it's really interesting to hear how you've made the link between the early film days and what you're doing now. It's interesting to see the progress. And, you know, as you said earlier, a lot of people still do shoot film and it's not quite the same. You've taken ideas and experience from film and you've put it into digital and rather than having this sort of nostalgic atmosphere for film because it looks cool, um, you're creating things that that build on an experience of using the different technologies. And it's, it's really wonderful. I, I really love this work and particularly the lake pictures. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So it's time for our snapshots. Jeff, what have you got this week? So I'm starting with a book today.
2: I will admit, I have not completely read this book, but I find it fascinating. It is called A Photojournalist's Field Guide. It's by Stacy Pearsall, and she's a combat photographer. And this is a book that talks about her experiences as a combat photographer, but it's also very much a how-to-do combat photography, which I would think would have a very limited audience, but... There are all sorts of lessons you can learn from, you know, having a small portable kit of gear and dealing with uncomfortable situations, and it's it, it's a fascinating look into another realm of photography that I can guarantee you I'm never going to do, but it's it's interesting to see that world and see how it differs because that's also photography.
0: Yeah, I I wouldn't yeah I wouldn't do anything like that too, but it it certainly does sound quite interesting. I Did Robert Capa ever write any books about his experiences during the war? Or I think maybe there was a documentary. It's worth looking up. If we find something, we'll put links in the show notes. Robert Capa is one of the founders of the Magnum Photo Agency, and he's very well known for the photos he took during World War II.
2: And Kirk, how about you this week? Do you have uh, a book? I have a
0: book, Yes. This is interesting how I discovered this book. On Instagram, I follow photographers, and then I look to see who they're following, and I follow some of these curating accounts, and I look, and when I see a nice photo, I follow the photographer. In this case, I think it was a gallery in London who showed some photos, and I followed this photographer. His name is Paul Hart. The book I have is called Farmed, and it's some fascinating stuff. These are black and white photos of farms in England. There are gray skies, and there are sinuous roads, and there are subtle lines and there are trees and fields and all that. And you probably know that I live next to a farm and there's wheat fields around me. I've mentioned that. And and I find this a really interesting type of photography, in particular because it's black and white landscape photography. Most landscape photography is color, but this is black and white, very rich, subtle shades of gray. Most of the photos are square, but a number of the photos are in a two-to-one aspect ratio. Now, I posted something in the Facebook group saying that, you know, I have mentioned on the show that I'm an aspect ratio fundamentalist. But when I saw this, I thought, that's really interesting. Two-to-one, a double square. So I took a number of photos that I'd shot recently of fields, and I cropped them. And what it does is it it's like a panoramic photo of a field. Instead of having all the sky and all the field, you're focusing on the middle. So these are beautiful photos in the book, and it's influenced me a lot in thinking of a different type of aspect ratio. We'll put a link in the show notes. This is a reprint of a book he published a few years ago, and he just has another new book out called Drained, and I bought the two books, signed editions, that I got directly from the photographer, and there's some fascinating photography in here. So it's Paul Hart. The book is called Farmed, and link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. I'd like to remind you to check out The Photographer's Ephemeris. Follow the link in the show notes. Until next week, thanks again for listening.